This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980CFPL. You may have read the book, Beautiful Boy. You may have seen the movie, Beautiful Boy. And we have an opportunity right now to talk about the story in behind both of those because the virtual breakfast of champions will take place on Tuesday, May the 4th. 8 in the morning until 9.15. You can purchase tickets through SJHC for St. Joseph's Health uh, and .ca, And we've got that address here if you happen to need it. But we are very, very lucky to be joined by the author of Beautiful Boy, David Sheff. David, thanks so much for taking some time for us. Well, listen, I'm thrilled to be here, and thank you so much for having the conversation. David, we were just talking about things that happen in life that if you are willing to tell people about them, there is so much that can be learned from that. And it, it's got to be so difficult to make that decision. You had something happen in your life that would be such a difficult story to tell, but it's turned into such a powerful story. How do you even come to a point where you say, you know what, we need to tell this story? Well, you know, you're right. We are, you know, there's this sort of cliche that says that we're as sick as our secrets. And, you know, I I learned the hard way that that's true because when my son, Nick, you know, was a teenager and became addicted to drugs and it was horrifying and I was watching him really die before my eyes, I was so ashamed and so horrified and felt so guilty and felt so responsible and whatever that I was keeping it a secret. I didn't want anybody to know. And, Yes, it was true. You know, I was getting sicker because I was not only because I was dealing with something that was completely overwhelming, but something that I was ashamed of and therefore I was hiding and therefore I was dealing with it just inside myself. And of course, once I finally decided to write about it, because it was just too big to contain and also I had felt, you know, that other people needed to know what was going on here, that, you know, we are alone. This is common, you know, everybody's dealing with this thing. Um, so I decided to write about it, and it was this huge relief, and there was no judgment, and there was no blame, and instead I just heard from so many people who just who told me, you know, we are dealing with the same thing you're dealing with, and thank God someone's talking about it. When it's happening in your own family, how difficult is it to even identify that, wait a minute, this, this might be something that we need to address how do you even get to that point well you know it took me too long to get to that point and i really would tell anybody who's dealing with this uh sorry i hope you're not but if you are um that uh, you know don't 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 ignore it because it gets worse and worse and worse and i did that for a really long time i just didn't want it to be real and so i pretended that it wasn't happening um and finally you know i continued to do that until at some point there was just no possibility anymore of, of, of denying it because my son um, was on the streets. He had disappeared. I didn't know where he was. And I was completely you know, terrified. And that's when I reached out for help. I called, um, you know, I, I actually was calling the local police. I was calling hospital emergency rooms. And I called people in the drug rehab world to try to figure out, you know, what I should do and what I could do. We're talking with David Sheff. David is the author of Beautiful Boy, A Father's Journey Through His Son's Addiction. And it is something that you may have read as a book. You may have seen the movie that stars Steve Carell. 
and it tells a, a very common story and a story that is very powerful. David, can you, for anyone who is unfamiliar with the story, can you take us through what you went through with Nick? Sure. You know, um, my son was very young when I first learned that he smoked marijuana. I was completely blindsided. I had no idea. I was so sad because not only, you know, he was just so young. He was only 12 years old. Um, And I talked to him. I had a meeting with his teacher and the school counselor, and everybody told me, oh, don't worry, Nick is great. He's this, you know, fabulous kid. He'll be fine. Um, but, you know, he, he wasn't fine, and over the course of the next year throughout high school, his drug use escalated to the point that it was, uh, you know, it was going to kill him. I mean, he, he overdosed a couple times, ended up in emergency rooms. I got a call from emergency room doctors who told me, you know, Mr. Chef, we have your son. I don't think he's going to make it. Uh, I learned that his drug use escalated to the point that he was using methamphetamine and heroin and everything you can think of, pills. Um so I was unsure about what to do. I had no idea what to do. In fact, I called uh, many people, supposedly, you know, so, so-called experts, and I finally, um, uh, you know, got him into a treatment program, and I thought, oh, thank God, he'll be fine. It's a 28-day program. You know, I'll pick him up in 28 days. But, you know, I learned the hard way, you know, that like the same that many families learn is that, no, this is not an easy thing to fix, to solve. And, that 28-day program turned into, you know, a 10 years of hell. Nick would do better. He'd get treatment. He'd get out of treatment. He'd relapse. His drug use would escalate. He'd end up in the emergency room again. He disappeared. He stole from us. He stole from our friends. I mean, it was a nightmare, and it did last for 10 years, and it took about a dozen different tries at treatment before finally we found somebody who learned, identified that Nick's drug use was related to the fact that he had you know, these psychiatric problems, these mental illnesses, he had bipolar disorder and depression. And when he went into treatment for those finally, um, that's when he was able to get sober and stay sober, and that was about 10 years ago. So, you know, we're very lucky. Uh, at a time when more people are dying, you know, it, everything has been pushed aside, of course, by the COVID pandemic, and, you know, we're losing so many people, and it's a tragedy. Um, but we still are losing, you know, about 80,000 people last year from overdose on opioids and other drugs. And so this is, you know, a very, very serious problem. It, 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 I learned, you know, the hard, that, you know, it wasn't just us. There were so many people dealing with this, so many families who were devastated, so many communities that are devastated. We're talking with David Sheff, author of the best-selling book, Beautiful Boy, and also the guest speaker at the virtual breakfast of champions being put on by St. Joseph's Healthcare Foundation and the Canadian Mental Health Association of Elgin Middlesex. And that is going to be taking place on Tuesday, May 4th. You can go to sjhc.london.on.ca and you can get information about that. David, it's one thing to tell the story in a book and then have it made into a movie but this is a story that you tell often this is a story you'll be telling again on may the 4th telling it again and again what does that do well you know it's hard every time because it does bring up the worst time in my life and in my son's life and my family's life you know it was it was horrible it was devastating but the other side of it is that you know there's sort of this 
comfort or power that we get when we do share our stories and we realize we aren't alone. And that's what's happened to, you know, over and over again, you know, first through the book and through the movie, through a lot of events, um, you know, because of COVID, of course, this event, uh, otherwise I'd be in London. I mean, I wish, I wish I could be, it would have been amazing to be in the same room with people who want to share their stories and to talk and to, to sort of commiserate and offer help and offer support is incredibly powerful. And that sort of has been the big lesson of this whole thing is by sharing the story as difficult as it is, um, we connect with other people, offer each other hope. You know, I meet so many people or hear from each other, so many people who've seen the movie, who've watched the book, who tell me, you know, that they're in the same situation, but it has been um, a you know nightmare because they have um, experienced, um, you know, even worse situations, worse outcomes than mine. I mean, a lot of people tell me, I, I meet people and hear from them whose kids didn't make it. And so, you know, it's a, it's an intense, hard experience, but it also feels very valuable and connects us all together, all the people who are suffering because of someone's addiction, their own addiction, a, a loved one's addiction, people who are in recovery, people who are struggling to stay in recovery, and even people who have a loved one who didn't make it. Um, we still can talk about a problem that few people understand and that I feel like you can't understand if you haven't been there. David, in closing, you mentioned that your son Nick has been sober for 10 years. How's he doing? Uh, yeah, not only has he been sober 10 years, which is really feels like a miracle, but it also is a um, uh, sort of a testament to the fact that if somebody gets it, they get sober, they get in recovery, they do the work that's required. Um, you know, for us, it involved not just my son getting in, in, in recovery, but also our family going in family therapy and having a lot of conversations, a lot of really difficult conversations. I mean, it's not just that he's okay, but he's, you know, we are all, just, you know, we're best friends. I see him all the time. We go surfing together. We take our dogs on hikes together. He's doing work that he always aspired to do. You know, he's a TV writer, which is what he loves. He's married. He's got a great relationship. And so, you know, it's not only that somebody can survive, but they can have a really satisfying, fulfilling life. And it's really a worth. Uh, it's, it's something that people who are in the throes, who can't believe that things can get better, you know, they need to know, yes, it can get better. You know, it can get better and your life can change and the life of the person that you love can change. Um, and it's just, you know, don't give up hope. That's sort of what I would say. David, thank you so much for taking some time to speak with us today and certainly for being a part of the Breakfast of Champions coming up on May the 4th. Can't thank you enough. Please keep safe. Uh, well, thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye. That is best-selling author David Sheff. And David, again, is the author of Beautiful Boy. If you want to pick it up and read it, then that is the way to go. If you are somebody that enjoys watching and, and learning from movies, there is a movie star starring Steve Carell, and it is powerfully done, and it is very true to the story that... David tells the story that he and his family have gone through, and David's going to be a part again of the virtual breakfast of champions for St. Joseph's Healthcare Foundation and the Canadian Mental Health Association of Elgin, Middlesex, and all proceeds from that breakfast are going to support youth mental health through the Mental Health Incubator for Disruptive Solutions, and that's a lab that's led by Dr. Arlene McDougall. 
and it's focused on finding new ways to improve mental health care for our youth. Let's talk about things that we hate knowing are out there, things that can make you feel violated. Somebody takes something of yours that doesn't belong to them. They just take it. It happens. Happened in our neighborhood not too long ago. I was talking with somebody up the street. They'd had some lumber stolen out of their backyard. The question was, how did someone even know that there was lumber in the backyard? Good question. Not sure. Not sure. But this is something that has been addressed very proactively by Ward 2 Councillor Sean Lewis. He recently hosted a town hall addressing things like break-ins and theft on properties. And Councillor Lewis joins us now. Councillor Lewis, how is... Today's already Wednesday. How's it going for you? Well, you know, Mike, I... I got to tell you, I, I got a little bit of a bone to pick with your colleague, John Wilson. Do you think you can have a chat with him about changing this weather forecast? You know what I loved? Mackay Taggart, who works for Global News in Toronto, posted something this morning. And it was a picture of the outdoors and all of the snow that we're all enjoying throughout much of Ontario. And what he did was he put the name and address of global's chief meteorologist anthony <laughs> farnell and it said for complaints please mail to <laughs> the address now that that's fitting all all of the meteorologists all of the weather forecasters everywhere take the brunt of the blame for something that happens <laughs> up in the atmosphere <laughs> Uh, well, they like to deliver the good news when it's a sunny day, so I'm going to put the blame on them for the snow today. Unacceptable. They, they need to well, go back and revise that forecast. Let's hope so. You know what? John Wilson was saying that the weekend looks a little bit better, or at least toward the end of the week, it, it looks a little less snowy. So we'll take that. Sean, you did something that's tried to give a little bit more of a sunny disposition a town hall to try and identify some of the issues going on with theft on properties can you tell us a little bit first off about that town hall and then what came out of it well i did have a, a virtual town hall because of course we can't do it in person right now uh, but actually i had lots of positive feedback from people saying do more of these virtual ones i like being able to attend from my living room uh, but i did this virtual town hall and I had reached out uh, to the constable who is my liaison with the London Police Services core unit uh, for the east end of the city. And uh, she said, you know, we'd, we'd be happy to do, uh, you know, a presentation on community safety and crime prevention tips. And I said, well, that would be great because I'm hearing a lot of frustrations from constituents about the petty break-in stuff, the, the shed being broken into and stuff taken, the car being rummaged through. I had it happen myself. I, I, in fact, I've had it happen twice since Christmas, once on Christmas Eve, of all things, uh, and then again back in March where I came out to the car and, you know, everything in the glove box was scattered on the floor of the car um, for the dollar and 25 cents that they got out of the, the little center cup holder. Um, I hope they, you know, got themselves a coffee or whatever, but uh, uh, I said, you know, we got to give people some tools to help protect themselves from this kind of thing, knowing that our police can't be everywhere at once. So we had a great presentation uh, from Constable Fickling and PC Fountain on community safety and crime prevention, and they went through some steps in a home safety audit 
that people can do. And I made sure that everybody who attended the town hall got a copy, and I've shared a copy on my website. So people can walk through this checklist of things that they can do around their own home to make it a little more secure, to take away the opportunity to become a victim. Uh, so that was, and it was also an opportunity for residents to, you know, really give police a chance to hear from them directly the frustration they've had about long call times, about uh, not being able to get through to the non-emergency line, uh, questions about how to make a report. Uh, and I don't think a lot of people were actually aware that London police have an online reporting tool. So if this happens to you, if your car's been broken into and rummaged through, or if your shed's been broken into or rummaged through, uh, you can make a report online. And it's really important to make those reports because, you know, really for, for police, if they don't know it's happening, then from their perspective, there hasn't been a criminal activity take place. So they have to know, they have to have that report. And it's not going to mean that an officer is necessarily going to come out every time. Uh, you know, once your car has been, been broken into and the glove box gone through, there's not a whole lot the police can do after the fact. But knowing where those sorts of crimes of opportunity are taking place does help our police force know where they might need to allocate some additional resources. Yeah, that's a great point. And a lot of times if you have, like you say, change stolen from your car, somebody's rummaged through the glove compartment, whatever it is, you'll say, yeah, I'm not going to worry about that. The police don't need to worry about that. It was it was three bucks and it was, you know, the whatever manual came with the car. So it is important to file that. Sean, before we go, and we're talking with Ward 2 Councillor Sean Lewis about a virtual town hall he hosted addressing some property thefts and things like that in the city. What were some of the tips that they gave in the audit to look around our property? Because it might seem easy, but then you hear it and you think, yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Well, you know, one of the simplest things is keep your porch light on at night. You know, light is a good disinfectant. It, it discourages that kind of bad behavior. Uh, if you've got a coach light in your front yard, uh, which a lot of my neighborhoods do, keep that on. Uh, people are less willing to engage in bad activity if they can be seen doing it. Uh, you know, keeping, even when you're home, keeping your front door locked, especially if you're out in the backyard or, or in the basement or something. Uh, again, it, it might seem like a simple thing and it might seem like an odd thing to say, but some of these things happen while people are home. And that's really unsettling when you're a victim of a circumstance like that. So keeping your door locked, uh, they went over, some, you know, uh, posting, uh, getting that home security system. Believe it or not, they do use those systems. When we've got somebody on video, uh, the police will take images from that and use it to try and help identify suspects. Uh, so that's, you know, something that has a little bit of a cost to it. But those systems are, are getting to be pretty reasonable in price. You can pick one up. Uh, at a lot of different stores for about 100 bucks, and have a couple different cameras on your property that are sort of trained towards your front door or to your vehicle. Um, just keeping things secure and don't leave valuables out in the open, right? I mean, again, sounds obvious, but we all do it. Heck, I, I left my wallet in the center console of my car uh, two nights ago coming home from City Hall, and I went, oh, crap, my wallet's in my car. i got to go back and get that. We don't leave valuables anywhere where there's an opportunity for them to be taken. Just bring the stuff in from your vehicle at night. 
Yeah, there are a lot of tools to battle it. There are more and more tools to kind of see what's in your backyard, too, or on your property. So lock that up and make sure that you are as safe as possible. Yeah, great tips. Light and don't leave things out there. Even if it would seem too big to haul away, somebody's going to find a, a way to haul it. Uh, Counselor yeah, Lewis. Tarp your lumber. Tarp your that's a great thing. Tarp your lumber. Nobody wants a tarp, and they're probably not going to be able to see what's underneath it from above. So, great stuff. Counselor Lewis, thanks so much for bringing this to our attention today. Really appreciate the time. My pleasure, Mike. And I, I just want to say to people, report, report, report. If the police don't know, they can't go. That's it. If you see snow, go slow. If the police don't know, they can't go. Boy, we could, we're going to create a big long rhyme out of this eventually, but uh, that's, a, that's a good start. Maybe we can get Marilyn to give us a little help on that. Marilyn, what do you think? Can, can you grab the piece of paper? Can we get going on a rhyme? Counselor Lewis, you have a great day. Keep safe. Thanks, Mike. You too. Bye-bye. That is War II Counselor Sean Lewis. The math has not added up at Laurentian University. That story maybe caught a lot of people by surprise. And the idea that they have some really big financial issues, that we have seen cuts to programs, that we have seen cuts to staffing. And we have an opportunity right now to talk about what this has been like on a more personal level. Thomas Merritt is a professor at Laurentian University and joins us now to talk about what things have been like at Laurentian. We really want to thank you for joining us, Professor Merritt. How are things going today? Uh, well, you know, thank you for giving me the opportunity to chat with you. Uh, things are tough. Uh, it is a very difficult time at the, the university. Uh, i got to say that was a pretty tough segue going from the lease to, uh, to Laurentian, but I, I hear you. <laughs> Um, I, I, I think that I can tell you that nobody is, has come out of this well. Um, it came as a, as a surprise to, to most people when the, the CCAC process was announced earlier this year. Um, I, everybody has been bracing themselves for cuts to, to faculty, to staff, to administration, uh, to programs. Everybody has been speculating you know, how that could, could happen. Um, I, I know that nobody that I interact with regularly thought that the cuts would be as, as drastic as they've been. Um, but, you know, the, the bottom line is that the bottom line is a challenge, and, and there's not enough money to, to do what we want to do at the university. And so uh, a lot of people have been tasked with the incredibly difficult decision of, of how do you make those cuts. Um, I, I cannot say enough about the, the people that have been part of this process. Um, I don't think that anybody that's currently involved with trying to fix this is, is responsible, and no, no single individual is responsible for what's driven this. Um, so we've got a lot of people that are stuck with a very bad situation trying to, to support as many people as they can, and, and you can imagine that is incredibly stressful. Dr. Thomas Merritt with us, professor in the Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry, Science, Engineering, and Architecture. Dr. Merritt, was this kind of one of those afternoon things that you really hadn't heard, hadn't sensed anything, no one had, and then one afternoon it, it all just starts to come out? No, I, I, I think that everybody has, has been aware that there are financial issues at the university. The administration has been talking about this for a number of years. Um, I, there, there was a hesitancy, I think, on everybody's part to, to, to I don't know if it's a hesitancy to dive into that. That, that suggests that people are trying to avoid it. I, it the situation is worse than, than most people had realized. I think the administration realized sometime last fall how bad things were. 
uh, and they started trying to figure out what what the options were, and the option that was settled on is the CCAC processing. Um, when that was announced, I think that was a shock to the faculty and the staff at the university. Nobody saw this coming. Um, and I, I think, as you know, the, this process has never been used for a public institution before, certainly not for a university. Um, and so there's there's been a huge number of uncertainties as to to how you take a process that was developed for industry and apply it for a not-for-profit. Uh, and I think that that's part of the, the sort of shock that's come out of the way this has been unfolding. Um, it is a very brutal process, and it's not a process I think was developed with the anticipation that you would work with a public institution. Uh, so there are people here that, that have given decades of their life to this university, uh, some incredible faculty members, some really incredible staff members, some really incredible uh, administrators that all lost their jobs. Um, and that's the nature of this process. It, it, the people that were retained were retained on the basis of their programs, not on whether those individuals were doing a good job. Uh, you can imagine if you have been dedicating yourself to your career and suddenly you, you lose that career, uh, that is a huge challenge. And, and I think very few of the people that were cut uh, last Monday thought that they were going to be the ones cut. Um, it, it's been a it's been tough. It's been incredibly tough. Nobody goes into academics because they're looking for a job. Um, these are careers. These are passions. Uh, people dedicate themselves to these careers, uh, and losing those so abruptly is, has been a huge shock. Dr. Thomas Merritt joining us, professor at Laurentian University in the Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry. As we look at the situation, the real situation at Laurentian right now, where, yes, there have been financial issues for a little while, but did anyone know how deep they were running? And now you look at some of the fallout that has come with them. Dr. Merritt, we could easily be having a conversation about the challenges of teaching students during a pandemic and, and all of that that has gone on. And, and that would probably be enough, let alone having something like this as part of Laurentian right now. It, it certainly, it, I can't think of a better term than unbelievable. Uh, you know, the, all of this piling up at, at one point. Um, we're going to have to find a way to move forward. Uh, we're going to have to find a way to move forward out of the pandemic. We're going to have to find a way to move forward out of the current financial crisis at the university. Um, we have lost some of the best people that we're going to be part of that process, and it's going to be more of a challenge because of that. Um, I, fundamentally, I think one of the things that we need to think about is this is a public institution. Um, we are a public university. We are part of Ontario. We are part of northern Ontario. Um, the university is being asked to do more with less. It's being asked to work in a business model. Um, and I, I was thinking about this this morning after um, your producer asked if I'd come on and chat. It's sort of analogous to saying to a public library, um, we need you to play the stock market to, to actually put books on the shelves. As a society, we have decided that things that there are certain things that are important. Literacy is important. Public health is important. Public education is important. Um, universities need public support in the same way that a public library or a public hospital needs that support. Um, and right now, that support is not sufficient. Um, working in the North is an expensive proposition. Supporting people in the North is incredibly important. Um, it, is a, it is a very broad, very diverse, very spread out population. 
and there are a lot of expenses that are part of that. Uh, but we agreed as a society in the 1960s that, that Northern Ontario needed a university, and that was going to be Laurentian. Um, since then, I don't know that the funding has matched the, the needs of that university, and I think that's what's put us in this situation. When you look at, at what those maybe differences are, because you know we're not in the north in southwestern Ontario, what do you think those added challenges come down to? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. So why is it so hard for us to, to do this at Laurentian? And I don't know that if there was, honestly, if there was an easy answer, we would have found it already. Right? <laughs> and, and so it's a complicated situation. Um, part of it is that we have a really diverse population that is spread out. And so we really need to attract um, and serve a, a wide variety of people from a wide variety of backgrounds. Um, and that often means that class sizes are going to be smaller um, because they're just not as many individuals. I mean, if you're, if you're comparing northern and southern Ontario's density is one of the first things that jumps out. Um, but just because you live in a small town doesn't mean that you shouldn't have access to education. In fact, everybody should have access to education. And so it's going to be more expensive to have a university where you're pulling in smaller class sizes. And so we need to have support that, that reflects that. Um, one of the things that made univer- makes universities, uh, sorry, let me try that. It is something that made Laurentian unique. It is something that we have to find a way to make, continue to make Laurentian unique, is the tricultural mandate that is part of this university, is the foundation of this university. And that means francophone and indigenous issues as well as the, the more typical anglophone Canadian issues, broader issues. And so that, to take that tricultural mandate seriously, you have to have programs that address issues in indigenous education, that address issues in in francophone education. Those are smaller populations. That's one of the reasons that these populations are underserved. And that's going to be reflected then in in smaller class sizes. Um, Just because you're in a small group doesn't mean you shouldn't have support. I mean, that's the whole point of having universal health care, having universal education, having universal access to education. Um, We don't want to, to be excluding people. Um, and when you when you have the bottom line, can you have X number of individuals in a classroom? When you work with smaller demographics, you're going to have smaller numbers of students, and we have to have financial support that allows that to happen if we want to honestly say that we are going to be supporting everybody in their education. We're talking with Dr. Thomas Merritt, professor in the Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry at Laurentian University, and you raised some excellent points. I mean, the easy solution for any of us to sit back would be say, well, just have more students, more students, more tuition, more tuition, more money, bingo, bango. It doesn't sound like that's the way it works. No, and, and that's unfortunately the, the, the easiest way to, to justify how you keep an institution open is you have to have X number of students, and they're going to bring in X dollars in tuition, and that's going to keep the doors open. Um, I'm incredibly proud of what Laurentian has been able to do in the time that we've been here um, in the sciences that I work in, but also in, in the humanities, um, in indigenous studies, in francophone studies. Uh, but having those kind of programs comes at a cost, and we need to have provincial and federal support Uh, for those programs to keep those programs alive. Dr. Merritt, thank you so much for sharing the story with us today. We really appreciate your time. I hope there are brighter days ahead. I I think we all do. I appreciate you listening to the story, and and, uh, I hope that maybe we've, we've got some things to think about. Absolutely. Keep safe.
Thanks. You too. Take care. That's Dr. Thomas Merritt, Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry. And it raises a really interesting question in all of this because, you know, we live in a very matter-of-fact world. And when we're looking at, let's say, business, and while, sure, education shouldn't have to be lumped in with business, it kind of is. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3. 